This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Journal on Romans. Whether you're going to be here for the whole series or you're just here for the for one time, I hope you take this back because in it it begins with how to actually gain and benefit um, from the sermons that you hear. You're going to spend an hour listening to God's word. How do you best um, gain from it? So there's a short article on that, and in it there are a lot of spaces for you to journal down as you listen and to put questions that you may still have and to engage with God's Word because if you engage with God's Word, it speaks to you. So this morning we are right into our second series in the Romans and uh, it's, it's a complex passage with a lot of things happening and I'd like to invite you to pray with me and ask God to help us to engage with His Word. Would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that is your power. And we pray this afternoon as we open up that God, your word uh, will speak to us. Your Holy Spirit will help us to understand your word and not just our minds, but will engage our hearts and strengthen our hands and our feet that we may be that we may be strengthened when we come before you. So be with us this, morning, uh, this afternoon, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you have your bulletin, it would be great to keep it open because the passage is right there, and I'll look at it all through this time we have together. Now, there is an observation that has often astounded me. I don't know if you have this before. How some who come from amazing Christian family or heritage that eventually rejects Jesus and Christianity. But meanwhile, others in the most remote corners of the world who had never heard of Jesus at the first hearing of the gospel became Christians. And when I became a parent, I became more aware as well and grieved more deeply when I saw parents who loved Jesus, whose children grew up and left Jesus, and when I have those moments, I always felt very burdened, and I'll go home when my kids are asleep, I'll just creep into their room, and I'll look at them, and, and I just urge to pray that God, they will continue to love you and know you as they grow up. But meanwhile, it amazed me with wonder to hear of testimonies after testimonies of those who did not want to believe in Jesus. They said, no Jesus, no way, thank you, and they end up becoming Christians. Some of them were famous writers, you have C.S. Lewis, you have Lee Strobel, others who are just people in the far distant villages who come to know Jesus and they're willing to give up everything. Some of them have lost their own village, people kicking them out of their own homes because they become Christians and they cling to it with joy. It amazed me of these two ways that things happen. Why do some people believe in Jesus Christ while others reject Him? Now, welcome to this afternoon, because we come back to this series on Romans, and this will be one of the questions that we will think about together. But just a quick recap before we dig into Romans chapter 9, because in, be- in the beginning we have journeyed eight chapters on Romans, and Paul, through his um, first eight chapters, has spoken to us a lot, and uh, how it mean- what it means to come under and to live under God's grace, if you know him. There are two particular things in Romans that Paul is concerned about. At the end of the book, he's concerned that the Roman Christians will also be his partner for the gospel to proclaim Jesus. There's another second concern that he has in this book of Romans is he wants the, the Jewish Roman Christians and the Gentile Roman Christians who are stuck together to be united in a grace that they have in Jesus Christ. So, from chapter 1 to 4 of Romans, Paul speaks about God's grace revealed in Jesus Christ that we can be made right with God by grace alone through trusting Jesus alone. Chapter 5 to chapter seven, chapter 8 of Romans, we look at the Christian life, what it means to live under grace. In fact, we ended our first series in one of the most amazing chapters in the whole of the Bible. Romans 8. 
It tells us how there is no condemnation for those who are already in Jesus Christ. If you are in Jesus Christ, there's no more condemnation in you. So even as you struggle deeply with sin, as you fight sin every day and you cry out to the Lord, the assurance is that if we are in Christ, that we are secure. And this is how Romans 8 ends. And this is where Romans 9 picks up. This is how Romans 8 ends. At the last verse, it says, Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul tells us in the first series where we ended that we can be so secure in Christ Jesus because God keeps His promise to us in Jesus and He never ever fails. That's the sweetest thing you can hear when you hear that God always keeps His word. He never fails and He secures you. You will be secure. That's how it ends. But today, we have an amazing turn of an event as we step into Romans 9. Because after the amazing escalation of Romans 8, we come to Romans 9 and almost immediately, we face a death-threatening crash. They will put all the promises in the earlier chapters into question. Now, you may or may not be aware, uh, if you're a finance person, you may be aware that this year, in the American stock market, is one of the longest running in history. For nine and a half years, it's been going uphill. Uh, it has almost never been like that in the past. So everyone who has their money in the stock market for nine and a half years is always going up, and people are just enjoying it, and they almost forgot what it means to go down. But imagine one day, the, the phone starts ringing all over the place, and everyone picks it up, whether it's your uh, insurance agent, your financial planners, all of them call and say, the market has totally plunged. Everything has digged deeper than it has ever been. Everything you have is gone. Now, that is possible in today's market. But let me put it this way. As we come to Romans 9, we're coming to something similar to that because it begins with something that threatens everything that Paul has been speaking about. And let me read to you what is happening in chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. If you have your bulletin, look at that passage with me and I'll read it for us. Romans 9, verse 1 and 2. That's what Paul says. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. So the Paul who, if you have been here for eight chapters, is going uphill all the way and suddenly he makes this sudden dive from great joy to deep sorrow and anguish. And the question is, why? Why is there a sudden change in his letter? And the reason is actually found in verse 3 because after speaking about the great victory of Christianity, about Christians have in, in Jesus, Paul, he, he turns around, he looks at his own Jewish people those who are of his own blood, and he sees how many of them have been cut off from the salvation of God. And he became extremely sorrowful. In fact, so sorrowful as Paul, he wished he could trade places with those who are his kinsmen, his own Jewish people, so that he will be cut off and they will be included. Now Paul, if you have known Paul's story, Paul is an apostle that was sent to the Gentiles. But if you have followed him in the story of Acts, where Paul's story is unpacked, Paul never ever forgets the Jewish people. Every new places he goes to, Paul, he will always go to the synagogue if there's one, and he will speak to the Jews first, until they kick him out, and he goes to the street. As they reject him, he goes to the street and he preaches about Jesus. The Gentiles, the non-Jews, start to accept Jesus. And he's grievous to him because it happens again and again. Paul's grief. It's great, but it is greatly intensified even further here because of all the people on this world, his own people, even you might recognize this, the Jewish people, they have the greatest privilege on earth to be born as Jews, to hear about God. And they should have recognized when Jesus appeared, when they hear, when Paul proclaimed Jesus that, he is the Messiah, that means the anointed one from God, and He's here to save them, 
all their sins and their death. In fact, look at all the privileges they have in verse 4 and 5. I've, we have no time to look at all of them. You can ask me in Q&A. But as you look at the whole range of privileges, Paul says they should recognize that Jesus is not just God's Messiah. They should recognize Jesus is, verse 5, God overall. That Jesus is God himself coming. But alas, with all their privileges, religious heritage, birth, rights, that they choose to reject Jesus Christ. And meanwhile, the Gentiles keep flocking in and becoming Christians. So, a very important question that any Jew, as they look at Paul, he will challenge him is this. This is what a Jew will ask Paul. If you say that the large number of Jews, because they reject Jesus, are not saved, and they challenge him, are you saying that God fails to keep his promise to save the Jews? If all the Jews reject Jesus are not saved, Paul, are you saying that God has failed in his promise to save the Jews or the Israelites? Some Jews may even provoke the Gentiles around them and say, you believe in Jesus? Let me tell you, if God fails to save the Israel, the Jews, how sure are you that God will keep his word to save you, a Gentile, because of you believing in Jesus? If God fails in his promise for us, Israel, how confident are you that God will save you. So here's the challenge. Paul, if you, what you say is true, that not all Israel are saved. Are you saying that God's word has failed? That's the challenge. And Paul's argument is this. His answer is no. God's word has not failed. Now before we dig into the whole argument that Paul has, perhaps I want to pause here and just help us to think, what is this relevant to you and me? What is this thing about the Jews have any relevance to you sitting there and me standing here? Because if it has no relevance, we should all go home and skip this passage. I think there are plenty of relevance for us. And I'll just bring up two big ones for us today. The first thing is this. The challenge that the Israelites or the Jews give to Paul is a very serious one and we need to take that into consideration. Because if God has failed to keep his word to Israel, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to save the people of Israel, perhaps all the claims that we have in Jesus will not stand. If God's promise to Israel fails, perhaps we are not that confident in His promise to us. All that we hear in Romans 8 will be put into question. And secondly, is this, if the Jews and the Israelites they are not saved by their parental um, or religious heritage, then how much more, you and I, we need to realize that Christianity is never inherited if you just come from a Christian family. If you go to a church, if you have communion, if you get baptized, if you have all of this, but you have no personal relationship with Jesus, you'll be the same as the Jews. If they can't be saved without Jesus, neither can we. All the heritage we have, brings us nothing. Even if you have the best Christian parents, they will not be able to save you. So these are at least two other things that we'll look at and you might see more as we go along. So this passage is deeply relevant and important to you and me to engage with it and the challenge that Israel or the Jews have on Paul. And so Paul's argument is that God's word to Israel never fails. And so he reads, and let me read his answer for us. Look at verse 6 with me. Paul says, It is not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So the reason Paul gives is this, God's promise to save Israel has not failed because not everyone who are physically born as an Israelite or Jew are true Israelites. So not all who are born Israel are true Israel. Now this is a huge claim that will evoke more objections if you are a Jew as you hear this because you will say that what are you talking about? And Paul, he has to defend his, uh, his declaration and he gives two defense and two points in Israel's history to validate 
his argument. So I've that in the screen, and you'll see them as they come along. The first point of history that he brings up is found in verse 7 to 8 about Abraham. Because the point is that God's promise was never, from the beginning, given through mere birth or human rights. Not all who are born from Abraham automatically receive God's promise. So I'll read verse 7 to 9 for you. You can even read it to me if you want from your bulletin. Verse 7. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children of physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Now, some of us will be so familiar with Abraham and Sarah's story that you you close your eyes and you can remember, but I think it's worthwhile to run through part of it together to find a familiar ground on it. If you're familiar with God, He called Abraham and Sarah out from their retirement village at 75 years young and says, you're going to leave everything and head off to a new place where I will make you a great nation and all peoples on the earth will be blessed when they look at you and those that are brought up through you. So, so they pack their bags, they, they cash out their retirement uh, funds and they head out. And by the time you reach Genesis 15, Abraham had become a very great man. And again, God mentioned that he would bless Abraham and God himself will be Abraham's very great reward. And here is the conversation between God and Abraham. I'll read to you verse chapter 15 of Genesis, verse 2. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took Abram outside and said, Look at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to Abram, So shall your offspring be. That was God's promise to Abraham. When Abraham heard this, he believed in God. But it did happen. The child didn't happen the next year. Years went by. No child came. And they still believed in God, but Sarah was getting really quite old, and, uh, and she was childless. And so they decided to give God a hand. How did they do that? Sarah decided to give her maidservant, Hagar, Egyptian maid, to, to Abraham, so that he can have a child through her. And he did. And, they, and Hagar gave birth to a child called Ishmael. But this is not what God has promised. And so one day God appeared to Abraham again and this conversation came out in Genesis 21. Let me read to you this account and you see where Paul is going. I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. It goes on, Now Abraham and Sarah were already very old. Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I now have this pleasure of being a mother? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why does Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And here's the quote that Paul brings into Romans 9 in your hand. God said to Abraham, I will return to you at an appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah got pregnant a year later. Isaac was born. Now the point Paul is bringing in his argument in Romans 9 is that God's promise was never given through natural descent, but through promise, not to Ishmael, but to God's specific promise and his, through his subsequent power to bring out an impossible child, the child Isaac himself, to receive God's blessing. Now if you are listening as a Jew there, trying to engage with it, the next thing you might argue with Paul would be, Paul, that's not a good enough argument. Because, well, choosing Isaac over Ishmael 
it's not that difficult because you know, they have different mothers. You know, Jacob was born by Sarah and Ishmael was born through the Egyptian maid Hagar. So Paul to drill his point in that God's promise of blessing was really true, his promise, but rather than physical descent, he moved to the second historical account and this is the birth of Isaac. No, Isaac's twins, Jacob. You saw you, you. You might have heard this story. It is found here again in verses 10 to 13 in his argument. In fact, Paul wants to add one more layer. He wants to add that because it's not just about God promising. God will also choose and elect even before anyone can do good or evil. So look at it from verse 10 onwards. See how Paul says, well, how about this? Paul continues from verse 10. Isaac, he has one wife called Rebekah. She gave birth to two children at the same time, twins. But even then, God was not obligated to bless both children. Listen to this account of what happened back in Genesis 25. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac. We just heard that. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. Then the babies in her jolted each other within her and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to ask the Lord. And the Lord said to Rebekah, There are two nations in your womb. Two people from within you will be separated. One will be stronger than the other. And listen to this. The older will serve the younger. Even before the two children were born, God has decided that the older child will serve the younger child. Esau, the older brother, will serve Jacob, who is later known as Israel, the father of what we have and understood in the Old Testament. Now, not only was God's promise not dependent on the physical birth. It was also not by works at all. For God chose the younger son, Jacob, even before either of, them, either of them was born or had done anything, whether good or evil. So listen now back to Romans 9, verse 11 to 13, as we hear what Paul brings up. Look at Romans 9, verse 11. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now it's crucial to recognize in Paul's argument that right from the beginning of God's promise is given to those that God calls rather than physical inheritance or works because no one can bind God's hand and demand promise. God's promise gives through Him and no one can frustrate it no matter what they try. Otherwise we shall see in a short while that no one will be saved. So God's word to Israel has not failed because not all who are physically Israelites have the promise or are the true promise Israel. Only those that God has raised by promise and those that God has chosen. Now, but if, it, now if you are following with me and reading, you might be one of those that start to feel uncomfortable when you look at verse 13. It distresses some because what does it mean for God to say, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. What does it mean for God to say, I love this child, but I hated the other one? Now, the emphasis of verse 13 is really on God's right to sovereignly choose one over the other. Now, this quote is actually taken from the book of Malachi in um, chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. This quote is taken uh, or was spoken 500 years or so before Paul's time. At that time, this is the context, the Jews or the Israelites, they were suffering greatly. They, they were post-exile. They were sent off to Babylon in captivity in 586 BC. 
And as they come forth through suffering, they doubted God's love. Perhaps God doesn't really love them. And in that, God responds. He says, He will not fail in what He promised because it is Jacob He loved. And He brought on the second part, Esau that He hated. Because there were the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, who had done wrong and they got away. But God said they will face judgment. So in that time where the Israelites doubted God's love, God said, and I love you as I promised. And I will judge those who are due for judgment. So the emphasis in verse 13 is that God is the one who elects and chooses. So we've gone a long journey for a while now. You and me, we've journeyed through um, verse 1 to verse 13. What do all this actually mean for Paul's listener and for you and for me? Well, first of all, Paul wants to affirm that even though many of the Jews, from verse 1 to 5, are not saved at that point, they are not saved because they refuse to believe in Jesus. It's not because God's promise has failed. And for us, then, we must recognize that God's promise of salvation never comes through inheritance that we get from anyone. Not for the Jews in their birthright, Neither does it come for us because it's all God's choice on whom He would save. So here's a sobering answer to the question we asked right in the beginning. Why do some people believe in Jesus Christ while others reject Him to the end? And the answer is this. It is God's sovereignty and His choice. Now immediately, if you're still following me and are not lost, you have an objection that might come forth. The objection would be, well, if God didn't choose me to believe in Jesus, is it just for God to judge me? I don't know if you will have that as you hear that. If it's, God's not, it's not God's choice to choose me, it's God just to judge me. And so here we read verse 14, as Paul anticipated that. Look at verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? And Paul replies, not at all. Now imagine the objection Paul's, uh, on Paul as he points that God chooses before anyone has done good or bad, before they were even born. The rebuttal is, if that's the case, isn't God showing favoritism? Isn't God unjust if he chooses to save some and not the others? I wonder if you have asked this question or you have heard this question yourself. Is God just or is God unjust? And here is Paul's answer. His answer is, is God unjust? Not at all. And the reason is this, because you have gotten justice and mercy all mixed up. Justice is what God applies to everyone, justly. And if He applies justice, the judgment will be everyone who have to pay for their sins. Everyone, justice applies to all. But mercy, by its very definition, is not given to everyone as an obligation. Otherwise, it would defeat its definition of mercy. It is not an obligation. It is given at His free will. So mercy is solely given freely by God. And to argue his point, Paul brings up two accounts, and this time not about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He brings out one of the most significant history in Israel's account, which is the Exodus itself. So he first goes into God's dealing with the sins of Israel and how he showed mercy. And then he looks at the sins of this great Pharaoh of Egypt and how he showed his wrath. So the first one is on the sins of Israel. Look at verse 15 to 16. Let me read this for us. In fact, if you want, you can read this with me together. For he said, to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Now I want you to just take a look at that verse, and I want to give you the context of that verse in the story. Verse 15 that Paul says is actually quoted from Exodus 33. It's an event that soon happened after God just rescued Israel from Egypt, 
They crossed the Red Sea. The Red Sea parted. They ran through. God was guiding them through a pillar of fire, pillar of clouds. They came to Mount Sinai. And this place, God has been saving them and watching them. And just as Moses was caught up to Mount Sinai to receive the law of God, right under the nose of Moses, under the mountain of God, the people rebelled and created treason. They look up and say, I don't know whether Moses is coming back. Let's create a God for ourselves. And they created the golden calf and said, this is the God who has led us out of Egypt. That is the background. And God's wrath came. Because God is a just God. He does not tolerate treason. They look at that golden calf and say, this is our God. This is the one who brought us out of Egypt. And many died that day. God would have destroyed the whole of Israel if not for Moses who pleaded with God again and again, God, please have mercy. God was not, re- was not willing almost to bring them on. He says, I'll send an angel of you. And Moses says, if you don't go with us, there's nothing for us. And it's in that context where, Paul, uh, where Moses pleaded with God, God, would you show me your glory let me see your glory so that I know that you are with us, that you're still pleased to have us. And it's at this point that God said this in Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. Listen to this. God declared this about himself. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it was solely God's mercy that those Israelites who should be destroyed were not destroyed by his own mercy because by justice they would totally be destroyed for treason. But God showed mercy and compassion. It is his prerogative. It is his rights and he exercised that. Now mercy, dear friends, is God's rights to give. Mercy is not sinner's right to demand. Let me say that again. Mercy is God's right to give. But mercy is not sinner's rights to demand. No, dear friends, if you understood this, then what, we sh- what should shock us up to today at this point is, we are not shocked that God has chosen, has decided not to choose Ishmael, has decided not to choose Esau, or the the Jews or the Israelites or many around. But we should be shocked that God was willing to raise up Isaac, to choose Jacob. If you know his story, he's not a great guy. To choose remnants of Israelites, to choose Gentiles like you and me. This is what it should shock us. That he's willing to choose rather than he decided not to choose. But that is just the first part of Paul's answer to the question, is God just? Of which Paul's answer, is God unjust? And Paul's answer is, not at all. He is a just God. And so he moved to the next account. He just takes a few steps back from the event at Mount Sinai, back into Egypt, where Pharaoh was still the great man. Israelites were slaves there, crying out for mercy and for help. And here, Paul is going to make one deeper point about God. That whether God exercises mercy or judgment, God ultimately reveals His glory. Look at verse 17, 18 with me. I'll read it for us. The scripture says to Pharaoh, I raise you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Again in verse 17, it's a quote from Exodus account again. There are a lot of Old Testament here today. This is from Exodus 9. And we are told of this in Exodus account. That there was this great Pharaoh of Egypt, but God raised him up to display his power and his glory. Now we are told again and again, many times in Exodus chapter 7, 3, chapter 9, 12, chapter 10, 20, 27, it tells us repeatedly again and again that God hardened Pharaoh's heart 
so that he would resist God. No, we are told that he, God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh, in his arrogance, he would choose not to let the Israelites go. And so God's power will be revealed through plagues after plagues after plagues after plagues after plagues to show his greatness as God's power is revealed against humans' great rebellion. And this grand display of God's rescue of Israel from Pharaoh, it became two things. It became the pivotal history of the whole of Israel. If you look through the whole Bible, this event is trickled through the whole of the Bible. That's the first thing. It became the pivotal history of God's rescue of Israel. And the second thing that comes out is that it brought fear to all the surrounding nations ever since, wherever they hear about the God of Israel. These two things happened as Pharaoh resisted and God displayed his mercy. It's God's entitlement to harden Pharaoh's heart. But now I want to pause here and actually engage with something that we want to think. Is God just doing that one-sided act of hardening? And I think as we look back to Pharaoh's story, there are few things we need to recognize I think it's helpful. First of all, Pharaoh actually has a sinful heart and he's not an innocent man. Now Pharaoh, he had made Israelites slaves for his own benefit and scripture says he hardened his own heart as well. It's in Exodus 8. Uh, and in fact, Romans 1 will explain what is happening to Pharaoh at this point of time. This is what Romans 1 actually tells us right at the beginning. That Although God's invisible quality is clearly seen and here even in great plagues and miracles, people like Pharaoh, they will still refuse to glorify God, but instead their hearts will be steered towards foolishness and darkness. They will steer it darker and darker and more and more foolish. And so God gave them over to their sinful desires. That's Romans 1. But here as we look at the account of Exodus, as God hardens Pharaoh's heart, you know what is God? God is not making an innocent man do evil things and then judge him. Rather, God is, when God hardens Pharaoh's heart, he's really giving Pharaoh over to his own heart's desire so that he will harden it the way he wants and his continual rejection for God can magnify. So as God hardens Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh responds the way he so desires to harden his own heart, to exercise his arrogance and pride and pit against God. And it's in this scenario, that as Pharaoh's prolonged resistance against God, that God displayed his glory and his power to the world. But here's the amazing thing we need to understand. Now, when God hardens, he lets them do what they want, but when God grants mercy, He's not just granting mercy to an innocent man. God is effectively forgiving a rebellious person and turning his heart from rebelling against God back to himself. That's the difference between even as God hardens his heart and God has mercy on someone so that we can turn and acknowledge God is God and to humbly and gratefully receive undeserved forgiveness. Well, dear friends, it's really God's entitlement in today's chapter, to understand that to choose as He wills without, without consulting us, and it is God's right to have mercy or judgment on anyone as He wills. And we need to humbly recognize that this is God's right. That's Paul's point in Romans 9. And friends, listen to this. How you and I could accept that God has this right reveals perhaps how much we think we're a sinner. Let me say that again. How you and I could accept that God has the right to give mercy and justice perhaps reveals how much we understood about our own sinfulness. Because if we don't think we're very sinful, we'll think God is not just. But when we realize the crisis that we are in, we start to realize it is his rights. And we plead that he will have mercy on us. Now suppose someone still wants to oppose and shouts out verse 19, which is, which is an overflow of indignation of God's choice. This is what the person will shout out. Look at verse 19. 
says, then why does God still blame us? Who is able to resist His will? And to that, Paul sharply but accurately puts us in our right place with his answer in verse, 13, but, verse 20. But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? And Paul goes on with another Old Testament quote from Isaiah, ex- explaining or talking about God as a potter and us as a clay, saying that God has the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery of special purpose and some of common use. So as human beings, you and I, I hope you are a human being here. If not, uh, let me know. For us human beings, we need to examine ourselves and recognize that what we have become ever since Genesis 3. You know what happened in Genesis 3? I want us to remember and recognize what we have become ever since then. Because this is what we are. Ever since Genesis 3, we have a tendency to take up sin, to reject God as God, and to refuse that, to acknowledge that He is actually our Creator. We prefer to be the God and that we create Him. That's our human sinful tendency. And Paul uses Isaiah's illustration to say that all of us actually come from the same lump of clay, but each of us are molded as God sees fit. If you get the story of Isaiah, it's another Old Testament quote, but in, in Isaiah, what is actually happening in Isaiah 29 or 45 is that the context of the potter is used in a very terrible way. Because in Isaiah, this is what happens. The prophet speaks of how the Israelites at his time flipped the whole world around. This is what they think. They think that they could do secret things and hide them from God. And they think that God, the potter, is like the clay. The potter God is actually clay. In fact, they say in Isaiah that the potter, he actually knew nothing. Or perhaps he's the potter with no hands. That's how the Israelite calls God. And that's where Isaiah comes out. Has the potter no right to create from the same lump of clay what he wants? Paul doesn't end here and he brings some surprising revelation about God in Exodus event and this will shock us because God did not just choose to bring wrath on Pharaoh to reveal his glory and power but you know what? What Paul did or what God did in Exodus was also to reveal himself and do it for us for Gentiles like you and me. Do you know what happened in Exodus was not just for that once of event, it's done for you and was done for me. I want us to think carefully about this last part of today's passage with us. I know you have worked really hard to think. Um, if you have, um, I thank you for your good job persevering. But I want you to think one more thing in this last part of today's passage. I want to ask do you know what God has promised Abraham? Do you remember? What has God promised Abraham? whether it's Genesis or whether it's Romans 4, this is what God promised Abraham. God promised Abraham a blessing and that he'll be a father of many nations and anyone who has a faith like Abraham will be able to call him father and receive the promises that God has given to Abraham. Those who have faith in God can call Abraham father, but how will this happen? How will this trickle down to you and to me? And this is where verse 22 to 26 comes in. And look at it with me carefully in this last portion of today's passage. Paul says this, What if God, although choosing to show His wrath and make His power known, bore with great patience the objects of His wrath, prepared for destruction? No, God did not just destroy Pharaoh in in the split of a moment, just destroy him, bring the Israelites out, job gets done. No, God was patiently bearing with Pharaoh even as his heart becomes hardened in order to make the whole world know his own glory. Now God took patience to display his earth-shattering power, plagues after plagues against human stubborn rebellion. In verse 23, he says this, What if God did this to make the riches of his glory known to who? to the objects of His mercy whom He prepared in advance for glory. 
And God patiently did all this so that the world could see His glory and even more so, so that those who will receive mercy will actually get to see the glory of God and come to Him. And look on to verse 24. It's not just to the Jews of the time, but it was to the Gentiles, to you and to me. Because look at this verse 24, as Paul now turns back to his readers and say, and even us, whom he also called, not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. Now why did God so patiently display his glory? So that those he chose to have mercy will finally see God and be able to turn back to God. And not just the Roman Christians or Gentiles, but to Asian Gentiles to you and to me. Now that is the glory of the Redeemer God where He chooses, but He reveals Himself. You just imagine with me for this moment that if you walk past, there's this great disaster around us and this door with this big, great big signboard up there and says, come in and you'll be saved. Come in and be saved. Everything is going crazy. The world is crazy. Everything, fire is going out, war is going on. And in this place, there is great peace and this big door says, come in to me and you'll be saved. It's open to all. The beauty of that is there. But not everyone will go in. Some will say, that must be a trick and ran off. Some will say, this is crazy, I don't like it and go off. But those who go in, those who enter the gate, when they look back, suddenly saw that their own name was there. And Edward, you have been chosen. Andrew, whichever Andrew, you have been chosen. Ming Fei Daniel. Before that, you're looking, everyone hears it and sees that amazing thing. But those who respond and enter and look back realize God has chosen them and has called them by name. Now, does God's word fail? That is the big point of Romans 9, and Paul's answer is no. And the overflowing grace of God is revealed in these final verses in 25. As he says to Hosea, this is what God says, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my beloved one who is not my beloved one. Those who are left out from God's covenant, those who are dead in their sin, God says to those who are like that, I will call them who are not my people, my people. As I reveal my glory as they come back to me, they become my people. In fact, 26 says, in fact, they will be called the children of the living God. Now, dear friends, even as God in His judgment revealed His glory, He's also revealing it so that those who will receive His mercy will see Him and will run to Him and will call out to Him. That is God's power and glory's purpose, revealing Himself and drawing those who are His back to Him. And that was revealed in Exodus by the New Testament we saw God's power even greater as He revealed it on the cross. Because some will look at the cross and say, nah, I don't want that. That is disgraceful. I don't need a Jesus that's so pathetic. But it will be those who look at the cross and saw the glory of God and say, that is where mercy comes in. Where God's justice on me is taken away and put there. And that mercy is placed on me. And they will run to the cross. And those who hug the cross and receive the glory of God, those were saved. And so Romans 8 is true. That those who are in Christ, God has hold them. But Romans 9 is also true. That those that God has not chosen will reject Him. So dear friends, as we wrap up today's passage, as we have persevered quite a long way together on this first uh, chapter of this new series, I want to draw a few implications for you and me, and we'll close. The first implication is this, that we need to humbly recognize that God is sovereign and He's the one who chooses and He's the one who has mercy on whom He has mercy. Because being saved and forgiven by God is never our human rights. We need to know that. And secondly, what we hear about Paul, it should grieve us and we should grieve too about sin. Because sin is what drives us away from Him and Christ is what would save us. We should grieve all our sin and recognize God's glory 
And my prayer is that today, all of us here, whether you have heard today's message or whether you have heard the gospel many times, I pray that the gospel is truly the power of God to drive you to salvation, to drive you to hope that God has promised in His mercy through Jesus Christ. I hope that the gospel will not be something that you have heard and think, what a load of rubbish that I don't really need. Because even as glory is revealed, it can cause a division of those who embrace it and those who reject it. And finally, brothers, sisters, friends, this passage will lead us only to one thing. That as we look at God and His glory, that we'll stand in all of Him and that we'll worship this God who has done this impossible thing to acknowledge that He is God and those who have been forgiven will eternally be thankful that He has chosen them for otherwise they would never have been chosen. I want to close this time with prayer and then we'll have a time of discussion together. Let's pray. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, says the Lord. And so, O Lord, have mercy on us. For who we are, mere humans, to talk back to you and to think that you are but a mere option for us. So have mercy on us, God. Break down any hardened hearts that embrace sins. They will let it go and embrace you. For your word never fails whether it is to promise forgiveness or to bring about judgment to all who turn against you. Because you have all the glory and you deserve all the glory. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcdc.sg.